the BBC and Sky might still be giving you just wall-to-wall -wall coverage of the death of the Queen and the new King, of course. We will be discussing some of those developments over the weekend, mainly the more entertaining aspects of it. We're going to be doing that in the second half of the show, but we do have our priorities straight. In the first half of the show, we're going to be talking about Ukraine's lightning advances in the northeast of the country, and also the death of Chris Cabot at the hands of the police. Um, so two very important stories there. It's been a while since we last reported on the war in Ukraine. Partly that's because a lot of other things have been going on. We've had an unfolding cost of living crisis, as well as a prime ministerial resignation and the election of a new one, not to mention the death of a monarch. But partly it's been because Russia and Ukraine have been more or less in a stalemate for months. Russia took a little more territory north of Kharkiv and consolidated its position elsewhere, but the general lines of conflict remained the same. But now the situation has changed. Ukraine's forces broke through Russian lines on Thursday. First, they headed east to the Oskil River before branching north and south. That meant the key city of Izm could be surrounded, causing Russian troops to flee. Now, one reason the Ukrainians were able to make these gains was because Russia had restationed many of their troops in the south of the country. Ukraine had long been expected to make an advance on the strategically important city of Kherson, and the Russians were preparing to defend it. But that weakening of Russia's forces in the northeast of the country gave the Ukrainians an opportunity to push through. The most immediate effect of the military gains will be on the people living in the now liberated territories. This is a video shared on social media of residents of recently liberated Balaklia welcoming Ukrainian soldiers. <laughs> but the advance will also have a big effect on both Ukrainian and Russian morale. This was Ukrainian MP Alexei Goncharenko speaking to Channel 4 News. Russian forces are just running away. They're not retreating. They're just running away. They're completely uh, destroyed and uh, they, they are dropping their techniques, heavy techniques, including tanks and heavy artillery. And uh, during these several days, Ukraine liberated near 3,000 square kilometers, which is an unbelievable number. For example, Ukraine liberated strategic town Izum in Kharkiv region, uh, which uh, was occupied by Russians in spring. And it took one month for Russians to take it. And now Ukraine liberated it in a half day. This is a absolutely clear signal that Ukraine can win this war, not just stop Russians, not just defend itself, but to win this war and to completely liberate our territory. So this is extremely important uh, from strategic point of view and moral point of view. And moral of Ukrainian forces and the whole society is very high now. The moral of Russians is very low. They have, uh, like in their social media, this is a disaster. They are just shocked with, with, with what's going on. In retaliation, Russia has subjected Kharkiv city to heavy bombing, also knocking out electricity and water supplies to large parts of eastern Ukraine. Responding to those attacks, Ukraine's President Zelensky posted this on social media. A total blackout in the Kharkiv and Donetsk regions, a partial one in the Zaporizhia, Dnipropetrovsk and Sumy regions. Russian Federation terrorists remain terrorists and attack critical infrastructure. No military facilities. The goal is to deprive people of light and heat. Hashtag Russia is a terrorist state. 
To discuss Ukraine's advances and what they might mean for the broader war, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers. Can I begin by asking you how significant these victories in the Kharkiv region are when it comes to the, the general war? They do represent quite a major setback for Putin and the Russians. There's no doubt about that. The extent of that is, is rather more difficult to tell. It's clear that there were relatively few Russian troops in the area that the Ukrainians have overrun and overrun it very quickly. There were reports that the Ukrainians at one point were outnumbering some of the Russian troops by eight to one. There are indications that a lot of the Russian withdrawal was quite ordered uh, and was over a, a quite a long number of days. And that was partly, quite likely, the, the redirecting of troops down towards uh, the south, where there's the expectation that the Ukrainians would mount their major attack. But I think more recently, when the Ukrainians really moved in, then the remaining Russian troops didn't have the sort of facilities or the capability of the officers to do any kind of ordered retreat. And it became pretty chaotic. Uh, but the idea that the whole thing... Uh, the change has been entirely because of a, a chaos on the Russian side, I think is a misnomer. It's much more a case, I think, that the Ukrainians uh, successfully fooled the Russian planners into thinking that the major attack would come towards the Crimean Peninsula. Um, now, if that's the case, then that is a, a considerable success for the Ukrainians. And you were saying just at the start that this war has been stalemated now. Well, really, ever since mid to late March, right through to late, uh, basically late August, early September. So it's a very major change. It's of the order of the way in which the Russians had to pull back from Kiev itself and the areas to the east of Kiev, right down towards Kharkiv. So essentially, it's of that order. It is not um, the sort of beginning of the end of the war, I'm afraid. I think that's very unlikely. And you may well feel that the, find that the Russians are able to regroup to an extent but it is possible that where the Ukrainians are now may be how it stabilizes during the winter months if there are no major talks or, or no sort of bigger change on the ground. But at the moment, it's very difficult to say. I have to say that it's a very difficult time to actually work out what is really happening. You're getting different sources, some of which you normally regard as basically pretty accurate, others less so, but all telling different stories. And obviously, in a time of war, it is the first casualty. Truth is the first casualty. And so you're getting a lot of moves coming from each side, the Russians, particularly the people around Putin, and obviously the Ukrainians. For the Ukrainians, um, it is really very optimistic. But I think one has to be cautious about how far that will go. The other thing I think you have to remember is more and more day by day, this becomes a major proxy war between NATO, with the Ukrainians as the proxies, doing most of the fighting, virtually all the dying, and Russia. Um, that, I think, is where the risk of instability really rise, arises. Because if Putin is really pushed too hard, how will he react? Because, of course, he does have the capability to escalate. Is there a bit of a danger in sort of characterising it as a proxy war? Because I suppose, you know, the Ukrainians are really saying, this is our victory. Yes, we've been armed by the West, but that's because we asked for those arms. And I suppose this links into to another question, which was my understanding was... Why Kherson was thought of as so key was because the Ukrainians had to prove that they could win back territory to, to, to basically prove to the West that it is worth arming them. It is worth taking the pain when it comes to gas this winter because they can win. It seems to me that the story now is the Ukrainians have you know, successfully persuaded the West that with their weapons, they can win the liberation of their countries. Is, is that not how you would, would look at what's happened? 
Not quite. Don't get me wrong. I think what the Ukrainians have done, the Ukraine army, has been very effective right the way throughout. I mean, it is heavily outnumbered in overall terms, and the morale has remained very high. But you shouldn't underestimate the incredible importance of the aid that has come from NATO cumulatively. I mean, it's clear that there are Western intelligence operators, including CIA people, in Kyiv. It's clear that the Ukrainian army, the Air Force, uh, and even what naval facilities there are, but particularly the army, are getting more and more sort of second-by-second intelligence on what the Russians are doing. I think quite probably that they will know more about how Russian units are getting on than even Moscow does itself. And that's hugely important in this sort of conflict. Um, Some of the equipment they've been getting uh, is very advanced, uh, better than anything that the Russians have. So I really shouldn't use the term better because, I mean, all of these are weapons that are killing people. It is more efficient, more effective, particularly the HIMARS multiple launch rocket systems, but others as well. Um, They've now got what are called anti-radiation missiles, which are basically anti-radar missiles of a very advanced sort, which means that their aircraft are bluntly rather safer in the air. And there are many other examples as well. A lot of Ukrainian soldiers are getting trained. We know about them getting trained in Britain and some of the more distant NATO countries as far as Ukraine is concerned. But there's an awful lot going on in Romania and particularly Poland, which is really bringing them right up to date on the most advanced Western equipment. Then I think this is part of the thing on the Western side where there's a very strong feeling that this is a war which should go on until it really does drive Russia into economic difficulties. And one even suspects that, in fact, negotiations wouldn't necessarily be welcomed in Washington or London at the present time. I also suspect, um, with not enough evidence, I must admit, that in Ukraine, they have a a much more sort of um, um, nuanced view of it. And I think, you know, if it was possible to get any kind of negotiations, the Ukrainians would be up for it. And they probably accept now, even now, that some sort of compromise has to come. But this, I mean, we are moving into speculation there. So you need to be very cautious, I have to say. You could say time is on their side, right? So if, if they've got a, a military that's working very successfully, they've got the, the entire military industrial complex of the collective West behind them. Russia doesn't have anything like that. Ukraine has also got a very motivated army and, and Russia doesn't. Why would Ukraine want to, at this point, settle for um, a, a compromise when time seems to be on their side? Well, I think one has to remember that right through the Cold War, um, the, if I could, the Soviet Union, let's say Russia, also based nuclear weapons in Belarusia, Ukraine and Kazakhstan. And essentially that means that within Ukraine, there will be a body of knowledge, okay, many of them retired now, who know all about nuclear strategy and the rest. And the problem is that, you know, just like NATO, NATO still retains its first use nuclear policy. And the condition is very clear cut. If you're losing a conventional war, you're prepared to go to tactical nuclear weapons. And the Russians have exactly the same attitude. I'm not saying they would. It's easy to be scaremongering. But I think you could very easily get to the stage if Putin was really pushed hard uh, to actually start doing threats. I mean, it's what he did, in fact, just four days into the war when the original assault on Kiev didn't go according to plan. This is stuff from 40 years ago. Very few people now, I think, understand the extent to which um, there are these tactical nuclear strategies in any major power which has nuclear weapons. It is not just mutually assured destruction, if it ever was. Now, I know it's easy to overeg the pudding, I know this, but I think there are many people who know a lot about this. If you look at what is being written in 
probably the best general journal on nucleoside is the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. And you're getting highly experienced people there, including people who are senior in the American nuclear system, who are frankly pointing to the dangers of this getting out of hand. Maybe not even planned. You know, things can go wrong in terms of accidents, incidents, mavericks and the rest, the AIM thing. But essentially what I'm saying is that the idea that Ukraine is going to win the war as of now by defeating the Russians and expelling them, it, I mean, in many ways, for most people, that'd be great. But don't bank on it. Um, it's a much more complicated situation than that. We thought, what, at the end of March, beginning of April, that with the way the Russians had to withdraw from northern Ukraine, things were going Ukraine's way. Uh, then it went the other way on a major scale. And now it's back almost on the pendulum. That doesn't mean that the pendulum won't swim back. One very much hopes it won't, and we'll get negotiations. But I think one has to be cautious. And finally, in the coming days and weeks, what should we be looking out for? Do you think Ukraine are now going to try and win back Kherson, or do you think they'll probably try and consolidate their position, um, given these, these wins they've got in the northeast? Then given the level of morale, they may well try and go for Kherson. Um, what is pretty clear is that the Russians are certainly going to be regrouping on what they call their sort of key territory. Because one has to remember the area of the wider Donbass, which they've been concerned with uh, up towards Kharkiv, is less important to them. It really is. I mean, even, you know, British, senior retired British military people are pointing this out, that in fact the area that Ukrainians have won back is an area that isn't as that valuable to the to the Russians. The really valuable areas are basically Luhansk, Donetsk, and the rest. Those are blasts down in the southeast. And I think it is if those are threatened, or indeed if Crimea is threatened, then that is where I think we have to be cautious. And of course, we also know that in fact Putin himself is facing criticism from the ultra right within Russia. And so far, they do not seem to try to suppress this. So again, it's it's a very complex situation. Let's move on to our second story of the evening. Crowds gathered in London this weekend to lay flowers in memory of a queen who died of natural causes at the grand old age of 96. But at the same time, a memorial of a very different kind was being held close by. Thousands of people marched in central London in protest at the killing of 24-year-old Chris Cabba. He was a young black man who was engaged to be married and about to become a father when he was shot dead by a metropolitan police officer. The killing of Chris Cabber happened on the night of Monday, the 5th of September. It followed a short car chase in Streatham, South London. Cabber was driving a car registered to someone else. He was first rammed by a police car before being boxed in by two cars in a narrow suburban street. A single bullet was fired through his windscreen, piercing Chris's skull and killing him. He was completely unarmed, although it took the police nearly two days to confirm this publicly. This next video is Chris Cabba's mother, Helen and Karma, speaking in the aftermath of her son's killing. My heart is broken. I was speechless. My heart is broken. Police is taking Chris for me. I don't know how to say, but I need just justice to be done. The justice to be done for Chris. This is very racist. It's no good. In a statement released shortly afterwards, the family said this, We are devastated. We need answers and we need accountability. We are worried that if Chris had not been black, he would have been arrested on Monday evening and not had his life cut short. 
And it would take the Independent Office for Police Conduct, the IOPC, a full four days before it agreed to open a homicide investigation. In a statement, they said this, Mr. Cabot died after a single shot was fired by a Metropolitan Police Service officer from the Specialist Firearms Command while police attempted to stop and contain the vehicle he was driving. This followed the activation of an automatic number plate recognition camera, which indicated the vehicle was linked to a firearms incident in previous days. The vehicle Mr. Cabot was driving was not registered to him. Cabot's family have been understandably critical of the IOPC's slowness to respond to the killing. They released the following statement. On being notified of the death of Chris Cabot, the IOPC should have immediately opened a homicide and disciplinary investigation. The family was shocked to learn on Wednesday the 7th of September that the IOPC had still not done so and demanded a change of heart without delay. The family now await the outcome of that investigation, but seek a charging decision in this case in weeks or a few months, not years. Public confidence in the police and our justice system requires the IOPC and CPS to find a way to make decisions in this case on a timescale that delivers justice to all concerned. Avoidable delay is unacceptable. In the meantime, the family demands that the Commissioner of Police at the Metropolis immediately suspends the firearm officer pending the outcome of the investigation. We understand that while the officer who killed Chris has been taken off operational duties, they remain at work. I'm joined now by Ash Sarkar. I mean, the circumstances of this are all incredibly worrying. Um, what's your you know, assessment of what we know so far? So I was actually contacted by a member of Chris Caber's family the day and the day after that. Um, following the fatal shooting of Chris. And one of the things that was said to me is that the police and the IOPC had been really slow to communicate with them. They'd been really slow to confirm what is now known, which is that Chris Cabba did not have a firearm on his person. There was not one found in the car and there was not one found in the surrounding area. And so even though that's been confirmed, there are still huge questions hanging over this case. The first question is whether or not Chris Caber presented an immediate threat to public safety, an immediate threat to life at the time of his shooting. Because something which is commonly misunderstood by people is that intelligence alone is not a reason for the police in this country to exercise lethal force. Intelligence may be a reason for firearms officers to be assigned to a scene, but it's not a reason for them to take a shot. Police officers don't have any more rights to kill citizens than you or I do, Michael. Uh, the individual officer is legally culpable for the shot that they take, and they have to be able to justify that the use of force was both proportionate and in the interest of the protection of life. Now, these are questions that neither the IOPC or the Metropolitan Police have answered. Um, again, something that we know is that the car being driven by Chris Cabot didn't actually belong to him. So there are many ways in which someone in a car can obviously present a, a threat to life. But if the car didn't belong to him and there was no firearm on him, it perhaps begins to indicate that maybe the police acted too rashly too quickly because what threat did he reasonably pose? Why couldn't he have been 
arrested? Why couldn't he have been tased if it came down to that? And I think that those concerns articulated by Chris Cabal's family that he may have been arrested if he was black are, are absolutely on the money. The last thing that I'd like to, to finish up with is that for many people, this is going to have echoes of the cases of Azelle Rodney killed by Metropolitan Police in 2005 and Mark Duggan, who was of course killed in 2011. In both of those instances, the Metropolitan Police used what's known as a hard stop tactic. So it involves a very aggressive halt of a moving vehicle. Again, we don't have the details to be able to say either way whether or not the uh, case of Chris Cabba involved such a hard stop, but it is notable that the Metropolitan Police were recommended to discontinue that practice in 2005 after the shooting of Azale Rodney, and they didn't do so. It went on to be a tactic which resulted in the death of Mark Duggan, and I'd be very interested to know whether or not that was the case here. Let's take a look at some of the media coverage of this. There hasn't been too much um, interest in this story because of all this blanket coverage of the royals, but when they have covered um, what's been going on. It has often been pretty telling what exactly they have said. We've got a section from The Telegraph here. Um, there you go. Chris Cabber, 24, was gunned down by armed police following a car chase in Lambeth on Monday night. Investigators from the Independent Office for Police Conduct have confirmed that Mr Cabber was unarmed when he was shot dead and his family have demanded a murder probe is launched without delay. But it has emerged that Mr. Cabber, whose girlfriend is due to give birth in January, was handed a four-year sentence when he was 19 after being found guilty of a firearms offence. He was charged with possession of a firearm with intent to cause fear of violence after shots were fired on December the 30th, 2017 in the Canningtown area of East London. Mr. Cabber appeared at Snaresbrook Crown Court in January 2019 when he was found guilty of possessing an imitation firearm. He was sentenced to four years in a Young Offenders Institute, but was released more than a year ago, and his family insist he was working hard to turn his life around and had ambitions of becoming an architect. The but there is doing an awful lot of work, and especially so when you isolate what Cabba was actually convicted of. This is a man who was shot dead aged 24 when unarmed, but the fact he possessed a fake gun aged 19 is presented as context to explain why, or even worse, to justify why the police shot him dead five years later. And I want to show you one video from The weekend. It's from Sky News, and it shows the demonstrators marching for justice for Chris Cabba. But listen to what the announcer says. Look at that. Look at the crowds of people. Uh, for those of you who don't know central London too well, uh, Trafalgar Square just at the bottom of the mall. So the crowds winding their way down there. I think they've probably come from embankment. Uh, they're just coming around Trafalgar Square and they'll be working their way up the mall. And what a walk that is. There are thousands of people lining that route. It really is an incredible sight. They'll work their way up the mall very slowly, uh, meeting new friends along the way, so many people talking to each other about their journey here, why they wanted to come, their memories of the Queen, their good wishes for the new King. They'll make their way up here to Buckingham Palace. They're actually being diverted away from the gates of Buckingham Palace now. The floral tributes have been moved into Green Park, which is next door to the palace. It really is going to be a sea of flowers over the coming days, but that's very much going to be the focal point for those feeling that they want to come uh, to Buckingham Palace to pay their respects and to offer their well wishes to King Charles III. So it was a protest against the police shooting dead a black man, and the announcer suggested or you know, told the audience, quite frankly, 
that it was people mourning the Queen. Now, Sky went on to offer an on-air clarification, but it wasn't a correction, let alone an apology. The newsreader who made the comments did release an apology on Twitter, and a spokesperson for Sky went on to do the same, but not on-air. So on-air, all you saw was a clarification. Some important breaking news, which is that the officer who shot Cabba has now been suspended. Um, so that's a significant development. The officer who shot Cabba has now been suspended. Um, Ash, can I get your um, take both on the media coverage of this and also um, this this development which has just emerged? Let's start with the media coverage and, quite frankly, the breathtaking ignorance displayed by Sarah Jane Me. It is unforgivable. I think, to make that error. Because imagine if you were a member of Chris Cabba's family, you are working uphill to extract relevant information from the IOPC and from the Metropolitan Police. You are grieving the loss of your loved one who was just 24 when he was shot dead, about to become a father, about to indeed, you know, get married, about to start a career as a trainee architect. You're mourning and you're fighting for justice and the media whose sole job it is to know current affairs and be able to articulate them correctly to the public can't even do that and in fact takes an image which speaks to the fact that there is grassroots mobilisation happening that while the media the establishment press might be ignoring your plight, the community isn't, to hijack that image and say that it is in support of an unelected, absurdly wealthy head of state is insulting. And the least that Sky News could have done is issue an on-air apology. But I'm afraid when it comes to coverage of victims of police violence, the press have often behaved abominably. Again, you might want to cast your mind back to 2011 and the killing of Mark Duggan. There was a photo of him which many people would be familiar with where he seems to be glowering down the barrel of the camera and he looks like a stereotypical, scary gangster. That image was actually cropped and it was cropped so that it didn't show a gravestone for his infant daughter, who had died. And so that is one way in which images are manipulated to try and create a sense of, well, this guy had it coming. It doesn't really matter whether the shot was lawful. It doesn't really matter whether you find it suspicious that a gun was found so far away from where he was shot dead and no one saw him throw it. This guy was a wrong in and he had it coming. And I think that when you look at the way in which article copy is phrased to emphasize Chris Cabba's previous conviction, again, it's trying to muddy the waters. It doesn't matter what he did in the past. It doesn't matter what he served time for. He could have been Hannibal Lecter for all it matters. The fact is that a shot is lawful or not based on whether the use of force is proportionate and whether or not someone posed a risk to themselves or the public or to other officers. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what crimes this person has committed in the past. Um, so yeah, the, the the media coverage is is frankly dreadful. When it comes to the suspension of the officer involved, I think that's good news. Now the test is how fast can this investigation move? When it comes to cases of um, 
deaths following police contact, these things can often move very slowly and in different sections. So first is you've got an IOPC investigation. The second is that you'll also have an inquest. Now, of course, inquests can return lawful killing, unlawful killing, and open verdicts. And you can also have criminal charges following a criminal investigation and perhaps a prosecution after that. To get to that point of a criminal prosecution, it truly is an uphill battle. Um, it's often the case, uh, and it has been in the case the case before that officers have been allowed to confer to get their story straight following a death after police contact. Uh, the rules have changed. The guidance has changed. Officers aren't allowed to do that anymore, but that's certainly one of the things that happened following the shooting of Mark Duggan. And of course, because these things take so long to get to court, recollections change. Uh, witnesses become less reliable. Some fall out of contact. It becomes really hard to uh, secure a fair trial where justice can be done. Now we are going to turn to many of the developments in the royal coverage. The accession of King Charles to the throne has been choreographed to the last detail by seeing Charles grieve. We're supposed to sympathise with him as he adopts and occupies the most privileged position in the country. When we see him meeting crowds, um, we're supposed to see him as a man of the people. But even with decades to plan this, the Palace PR team has been unable to completely avoid any moment where the royal mask slips. This was a scene at King Charles's proclamation. So as you can see there, um, he is shooing away the, the ink. Very, very stuck up. He doesn't seem like he is treating the person who is working there with a great deal of respect. Now that video has been viewed 17 million times on Twitter, so it's clearly struck a chord, and he did it a second time. So you can see here, this is when he's sitting down, and again, here he gets very, very annoyed that someone is not taking his pens away. And um, this is a person who has clearly forgotten how to use his own hands. And um, people have argued we should give King Charles now, sorry, a break, I was about to call him Prince Charles, he's grieving. Um, but that wasn't a normal way to treat someone, was it? I mean, no. And the fact is that King Charles III, as I now suppose we have to call him, has formed with this long before his mother passed away. It was reported that he has a manservant squeeze out his toothpaste for him in the morning. This is somebody who has grown up with a level of luxury and obsequiousness that the rest of us mere mortals couldn't possibly imagine. And I think that there's going to be some difficulties, as I sort of predicted last week, in how the public understand King Charles as a personality compared to his mother. Now, regardless of whether or not this had a basis in fact, this was something which was very much cemented in perception, that Elizabeth II grew up during World War II. She was very much a roll up her sleeves and get it done kind of woman. It was always reported that she was a mechanic during the war. And one of the things which visitors to Balmoral especially loved to talk about was that, you know, she liked getting, you know, muddy in her walking boots and she'd drive you around the landscape in her Land Rover and you know, would come across as very humble. Now, of course, I don't know how humble a person can be when they're literally festooned in diamonds and issuing proclamations from a solid gold throne, but, you know, we're grading on a curve here. Prince Charles, however, doesn't have that same claim to 
duty and unfussiness and unpretentiousness. And it's in these weird moments where he is gesturing frantically and through gritted teeth to you know a servant to move away a little finicky pen holder that you just realize how weird this guy must be so if it was just a case of this was one weird outburst and there hadn't been any previous reports of things like squeezing out the toothpaste i'd be look the guy's grieving this is really high pressure leave it out but I actually think there's something a bit deeper here. And as you said, the fact that this is a bit of footage which has gone so viral tells you that for lots of people, it struck a chord with how they perceive his character. So he's working a bit uphill in terms of uh, cementing himself in the public's heart in the same way that his mother was able to. I suppose what I learned from this is it's not that Prince Charles, or King Charles, sorry, King Charles speaks to people who work for him like that, or, you know, signals to people who work for him like that. This is you know, the most privileged person in the country. It's not surprising that he's not particularly humble when he interacts with people. What I thought was interesting here, though, was that this performance isn't as seamless as I thought at one point it might be. Because obviously, the royals, we know they are incredibly privileged. We know they are not going to be humble people. But part of their legitimacy comes from their ability to perform humility and to perform duty and sort of the sort of entitlement you saw there. To me, that looked like the opposite of service. It looked like someone who constantly wants service, not someone who, who is, is willing to give service. And the mask slipping there, I thought was interesting because I do think that if, if Prince Charles, even though he has had decades and decades and decades to practice this, can't even get his proclamation right, then there are surely going to be a few hiccups down the road. Now, whether that is, you know, not being able to keep it a secret that he has political opinions and that he wants to influence politics or not being able to hide his arrogance and the, the arrogance and stuck-upness that comes with intense privilege. I do feel if we see more of these slip-ups, then there could be a problem for the monarchy. So we will keep looking out for them. Prince Andrew has made his first formal public appearance since the death of the Queen. He walked behind the Queen's hearse as it was driven along the Royal Mile in Edinburgh. Andrew was flanked by his siblings, who were all in military uniforms. Andrew, now a non-working royal, is wearing a suit. The presence of Andrew at these public events is, of course, controversial. It was only six months ago that he spent £10 million to settle a civil case with a woman who accused him of sexual assault. And his presence did not go without incident. You heard there someone shout, Andrew, you're a sick old man. And you can see the guy who shouted zoomed in on here. He's on the right there. And you can then see him get dragged from behind. And this was how the young man explained the motivations for his actions. That powerful men should be allowed to commit sexual crimes and get away with that. Of course, Prince Andrew has never been found guilty of sex crimes, but the circumstances surrounding his association with Jeffrey Epstein are now well known. Police said the 22-year-old man was arrested for breaching the peace. Um, Ash, what's your assessment of the incidents we saw today in Edinburgh? I mean, look, there's a certain irony that there's a man being led away in cuffs and it's not Prince Andrew. 
Um, I mean, look, I think that this young man was totally fair and within his rights to heckle Prince Andrew because before we, you know, gloss over what it is he actually stands accused of, it is sexual assault on three occasions, once in New York, once in London, once in the Virgin Islands, against a 17-year-old who was a victim of sex trafficking. Now, Prince Andrew, of course, vociferously denies all of these allegations. One of the things that was very interesting, however, is that the evidence that he marshaled in his now infamous Newsnight interview uh, in order to acquit himself was curiously reluctant to show itself when it came to contesting the civil suit that was brought by Virginia Giffray. So Prince Andrew famously claimed, well, this idea that I was a horribly sweaty dancer is untrue because I have a medical condition, which means that I'm physically unable to sweat or have been since the Falklands War. His owner lawyers, who I imagine will be very, very handsomely paid and very, very good at their jobs, were unable to find any documentation for the so-called medical condition where Prince Andrew was unable to sweat. Similarly, his alibi for the night in London where he was alleged to have sexually assaulted Virginia Giffray was that he was altogether now at a Pizza Express in Woking for a friend of his daughter's birthday party. He said that it was memorable for him to be in such a place and that's why he was able to recall where he was. Not a single witness was able to be found who could testify to the fact that Prince Andrew wasn't with Virginia Giffray and Ghislaine Maxwell, that he was in fact at this Pizza Express. And also one of the third curious facets of his denial was that he'd never even met Virginia Giffray. Now we've all seen the photo of a man who looks an awful lot like Prince Andrew, seemingly with his hand around the, wa- the waist of Virginia Giffray and with Ghislaine Maxwell loitering in the background. What all of this tells you is that there were really serious allegations. And if Prince Andrew had been any ordinary man, unprotected by rank or by wealth, he would have had to face the music like anybody else. He would have had to mount a defense and a court would have had decided whether or not there was a case to answer, whether or not he was guilty in a criminal sense or, you know, merely lost a civil suit, which is still very serious. If he was any normal man, he would have to do that. But because he was insulated by this position that he did not earn for himself, which was bestowed upon him by an accident of birth, he has not had to have his day in court the way anyone else would. So I'm totally unsurprised that somebody heckled him while he was, uh, you know, part of this cortege. And obviously it's very sad that he lost his mom, but he didn't have to participate in the public facing uh, events which constitute her funeral. He could have just participated in the private ones and could grieve as any private citizen would while he is in public representing the royal family, which he does by his nature, regardless of what his official place within the senior royal family is, he should be subject to criticism. So I think power to that young man. He has all my support. When it comes to the new King Charles, we've been shown almost nothing but scenes of royalist adoration. But where are the anti-royalists during all of this? 
Well, at least some of them have found themselves in police custody. Reports have emerged of at least two Republican protesters being arrested for going against the mainstream during the proclamations of the new king. The first took place in Edinburgh on Sunday morning. This 22-year-old woman was arrested for what the police are calling a breach of the peace after holding up this sign at Charles's proclamation. She has now been charged. For those listening to the podcast, the sign says, F imperialism, abolish monarchy. And this is Simon Hill. He's a Christian author and activist who was leaving church in Oxford on Sunday when he encountered the crowds that had turned out for Charles's proclamation. As Charles was declared king, Hill shouted, who elected him? He was then arrested, handcuffed and taken to a police van. When asked the grounds of his arrest, the police told him he was arrested under the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, quote, for actions likely to lead to harassment or distress. He was later de-arrested. Meanwhile, today in London, this happened. So just holding up a not my king sign is now grounds for the police to get involved. And to prove the point, to test how the law is being applied in the UK right now, Barrister Paul Powsland went to Parliament Square. You can see a tweet here. Just went to Parliament Square and held up a blank piece of paper. Officer came and asked for my details. He confirmed that if I wrote, quote, not my king on it, he would arrest me under the Public Order Act because someone might be offended. And Paul managed to get some footage of the exchange. Why are you not giving details? I'm not giving you. Why would you ask for my details? Just so I can check and make sure you can be here. I'm, sure I'm in your already, city. You've already said you've been arrested once. Sorry? You've already told me you've been arrested. No, I haven't. So no, you no, said no, that no, no, I said other people have been arrested. Okay, well, now we've made that clear. I yeah. want to make sure you don't have bail conditions not to be. Uh, so, so, just to confirm, you're not going to give me your details. details. Just for, I was holding up a blank sign. Okay. Why are you asking for my details? Because you said you're going to write stuff on it that yeah. may offend people. I said I was going to write not my king on a sign. And you asked for my details. It may offend someone. That image of holding the blank piece of paper I thought was especially powerful. You remember um, at the start of the war in Ukraine, we were seeing lots of images of people getting arrested in squares in Russia for holding up blank pieces of paper. Now, I'm, I'm not going to suggest that the police here are as oppressive as they are in Russia to protesters. We have uh, a greater deal of freedom to protest here than they do there. But these aren't exactly scenes that are particularly reassuring, are they, Ash? Well, no, not at all. It's frankly ludicrous. Um, let's draw a distinction here between the death of a private individual who their family are entitled to mourn in dignity and respect and what's going on now which is a public political and constitutional process which is being foisted on us as a nation from above now mrs windsor of course she meant a lot to her family and she deserves to be buried with all of the dignities that i think should be afforded to anybody however it is not as if during this period of mourning, which, you know, it doesn't just apply to the family, but applies seemingly to every public institution, including even the NHS, uh, Wimpies and Anne Summers. Um, we all have to participate in it. And if we don't, if we deviate from that script, then we face censure, ostracism, criticism, which is fine, 
uh, and now even criminal punishment. It's not as if the mechanisms of the state have taken a break for the period of mourning Michael, right? She dies on Thursday. On Friday, we get the beginnings of the proclamation. And then we've got all of this sort of, you know, pomp and circumstance, which comes swinging in, in order to naturalize the transfer of power from one unelected head of state to the other. Now, that might be something which, you know, you as an individual are perfectly comfortable with, and you have that right to be perfectly comfortable with it. Everyone else, though, has the right to protest it, to object to it, and to raise their voice in public settings where that, where that process is happening, where it's being dramatized, where it's playing out, where it's being staged. Um, this is a really basic democratic right. And what's frightening is that you get so many people who are forelock tugging monarchists who are saying, oh, well, you know, have some respect. There's time and place. You shouldn't do it here. I agree with the right to protest, but you were upsetting people. Actually, you know, to quote some of the least talented comedians on the planet, there is no right not to be offended. Um, this is part of the sacred right to protest and dissent. And it's quite frightening to see people just throw it away because they liked the last queen. The Queen's death has completely broken the British media. The BBC in particular has embarrassed itself with non-stop obsequious coverage of the royals. That has included some fairly bizarre racial stereotyping. On Saturday, the Britain correspondent for the Wall Street Journal tweeted this. BBC commentator explains that Scottish people, quote, don't emote as enthusiastically as people down south, unquote. That was as the royal hearse wound its way past silent crowds in Scotland. That's, of course, one way to explain people not mourning as vigorously as BBC producers might have hoped. So that was the BBC on Scotland, but what about the Russians? And isn't it interesting how on the international scene, um, it was Vladimir Putin who couldn't rush, of all people, who couldn't rush fast enough to pay his respects, jumping on the bandwagon. Um, uh, this anti-monarchist, atheistic... Um, uh, Republic, let's not go near uh, the war in Ukraine. But uh, he too recognized um, what this woman meant and stood for. Putin leads an anti-monarchistic, atheistic republic. Now, I assume uh, the commentator was thinking of the Soviet Union, which collapsed 30 years ago. Vladimir Putin rules like a monarch and is incredibly close with the Russian Orthodox Church. In fact, he uses that relationship to justify many of his actions. Um, the host, of course, didn't push back, but rather responded by saying, yes, he, he did respond quickly, didn't he? So that's just two examples of the idiocy of pundits on the BBC. The most ridiculous moment, though, involved them taking us for fools. And can I just add something about the Paddington Bear sketch that we've all seen? We should remember that she acted that in empty space. Yes. There wasn't mm. a real Paddington there, oh, although yes. it looked like it. She acted out um, what she would say to Paddington, and then the CGI experts went in and uh, animated a, a Paddington image for her. No. What? The Queen wasn't actually sitting opposite Paddington Bear. Give that woman an Oscar. She was speaking to blank space. The Paddington Bear was put in afterwards by CGI. Phenomenal. I had absolutely no idea. 
Um, I think from The Voice, that was probably the same commentator in in, in both moments. And uh, I think what's especially notable is that in neither, neither example, I actually watched the, the Russia one live. Was there any pushback at all um, from the BBC host? They have all given up on doing journalism um, since the Queen passed away. Ash, um, what is going on here? I thought Paddington 2 was a documentary. <laughs> No. Yeah, I mean, it's a, he's a real. He's a real bear. He's a real bear. Um, the well, he's not. He's not. Thanks to that expert, we know that he was he's, a CGI he's bear. A, he's a real bear with a little Ben Whishaw trapped inside him. <laughs> um, I mean, look, what you're seeing play out is that there are two standards. One is a standard of intense criticism and hostility. If you say anything, which is from an anti-monarchist or Republican perspective. The press will come down on you like a ton of bricks, even if what you're saying is perfectly reasonable and totally accurate. However, if you are saying something in the spirit of deference, veneration, obsequiousness, you can say whatever mad shit you want on TV, Michael, and people will go, yeah, that is just totally the case. I mean, you could go on TV and be like, you know, I just think it was really amazing that even Kim Jong-un himself, uh, you know, paid his respects. And that tells you about the kind of stateswoman Elizabeth II truly was. And you would have some totally vapid hair and teeth maniac presenter being like, oh, yeah, totally. Um, and I think that me and you have, have made grave mistakes with our career, Michael, because we've worn our sincere beliefs just on our sleeve to go, you know what, we would rather have an elected head of state. That was a mistake. What we should have done if what we wanted to do is just say mad shit on TV, get away with it and get paid for it, is become royal commentators. Communist royal commentators. I think it would be the, uh, there's a niche there that is, that is ready to be filled. Thanks, Ash. It's been a pleasure being joined by you this evening. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for joining us, for tearing yourselves away um, from the non-stop brown nosy coverage um, of the royal family that is on the BBC and, and Sky um, and has been since Thursday and presumably will continue to be until next Monday. For, for another respite from that, you can join us on Wednesday at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.